good evening. To, uh, welcome to the Thinkers Dialogue. And today we have a very distinguished guest with us today. Uh, and she is Tavleen Singh. In fact, uh, anybody who, who has been going through the newspapers would not have missed her writings. Uh, she's been writing for Indian Express for more than 30 years. Uh, she does a regular weekly column there. In fact, I grew up reading her columns. Uh, and I was just talking to her before the interaction that it is not that I've agreed with everything that she's written, but uh, of course, I've learned so much from her perspective uh, as we go along. Uh, and then of course, uh, as you know, like she is one of the foremost political commentators in the country. Uh, at points in time, like a lot of people would have accused her for being caustic, uh, but I think what I see is that, or pungent, but I think uh, she's, she does something which is very decisive. Uh, we might agree or we might disagree with her, but I think it is worth reading her pieces. Uh, she's also done a number of books. Uh, she's done the Indian, uh, India's Broken Trist, uh, Darbar, Kashmir, A Tragedy of Errors, and many more. Uh, but one of her foremost books uh, that we are really going to be focusing on and her writings post that uh, is uh, a book called Masaya Modi, A Trail of Great Expectations. Uh, and I hope if you've not read the book, you should read the book for a uh, very interesting view as to how the prime minister's tenure has been. You, you can disagree with a lot of things that I've written, but I think it's a very fair judgment uh, or a fair, she's tried to be fair in her writing in terms of like how she's covered the whole uh, few years or the last five or seven years uh, henceforth. Uh, but uh, Tavleen Singh, uh, thanks a lot for joining us today. It's, be, it's an absolute pleasure and honor to have you on the platform. Thank you. So we will quickly get into the uh, conversation. Uh, but before I get to the book, uh, I think this month is a very significant month in the history of India. Mm -hmm. uh, significant from a point of view that it has been 30 years of reforms. Uh, so I just wanted to ask you as to, you have been part of that story uh, of the 30 years of reforms. Uh, you were a journalist or a young journalist when this all started. How do you think we have really, or how we have come forward as a country in the last 30 years? Uh, okay, I am 70. So the India in which I grew up was something you cannot even imagine. Uh, Modi loves calling the Khan market gang, uh, the Khan market gang, as if it was the most privileged market in Delhi. I used to live near Khan market and it was a dump. It used, it's where we used to go to buy rations in ration shops. And there would be queues outside the Sarkari liquor shop. This was right up to about 95, where there was a shortage of everything in India. I could only get a telephone as a journalist. Uh, I couldn't buy a car unless I booked for it, like, you know, months or sometimes even years in advance until Maruti came along. So that India was the India in which I grew up, where basic necessities were not available. And this man, Narsimha Rao, who is actually the, the politician, the prime minister, I admire the most of all our prime ministers because he, with one stroke, changed India. And the India that you see today now of middle-class Indians, of aspirational young people wanting to be more than just a civil servant, that's the India he created. But that's very interesting. And you, you do talk about Prime Minister Rao, like, uh, and you say he was one of the most important people within the history of India. Now, could you tell more into, like, why do you feel that he's the most important? Of course, we've had great leaders in the past. We've had Indira Gandhi, Nehru, who sowed the seeds of how India has developed over the years. Then, of course, we've had uh, 
uh, Atal Bihari Vajpayee, uh, Manmohan Singh, and many. But why, why do you think that uh, Narsimha Rao was the most important? Uh, you know, I'm very against uh, the socialist idea of economics. Uh, it's one of my fundamental beliefs that India has remained a poor country because we took Nehruvian socialism as our um, economic policy, in which case what we did, I mean, in the case of socialism, is you hand, the, uh, you hand all economic activity to bureaucrats. And we trust them then with our souls almost. And if you remember, I mean, you, you would have probably read this before, uh, when Nehru became prime minister and by the time he died, the levels of poverty in India had remained the same. Uh, basic things like schools, one of the reasons why I supported Modi was I, hoping, I was really hoping that those things would improve. S basic schooling, uh, drinking water, electricity, um, uh, hospitals, which is more, most important at the moment. All of these things were, they were not part of that socialist program. So I grew up in India, in an India where, and you know, I, I come from a privileged uh, class, but so we could actually abdicate from the system like the bureaucrats did and the, uh, the, the leaders did. And the rest of India just lived in squalor. So I was very against Nehru's economic policies. I was very against Indira Gandhi's political policies because I think that, you know, this creation of dynasty, I, I just recently wrote that in a column, was her doing. You know, she used the emergency to promote Sanjay Gandhi as her heir. And this guy had never had a serious job before that. I mean, I think he worked as a mechanic, you know, in Rolls Royce for a few months. But, you know, she handed India over to him. And then, you know, Rajiv at least got elected. So did Sanjay later on, but not when she did that. So I objected to her political, you know, things. I'm actually quite a fan of Atalji, but he came after Narasimha Rao and took the process forward but the process of changing India was started by Narsimara. So that's fascinating. And you, you do allude to a very important point, and that is about the dynasty. And you write about that in your book as well. And you say like, Parivarvad is something which is very, very prevalent within the system. But my question actually arises much deeper than that. What you call as Parivarvad or nepotism, that is something which hits us at the helm of our society. It happens everywhere. You talk about industries, you talk about businesses, uh, you talk about politics. It's happening everywhere. So isn't it a very big cultural part of our country? And if it is, then how do we break it? It's going to be an important discussion. You must understand that when a doctor's son becomes a doctor or an engineer's son becomes an engineer, he's actually learning the trade from his father or whatever, that's one thing. And if a, an, a businessman who creates a huge industrial empire decides that it should go to his heirs, that's his right. Politics is meant to be public service. It's not meant to be a, a profession. You know, it, you can have a, a career and it's actually called public life. Now, you know, the gene for public service is not inherited. It's, you know, and what I, the reason why I object to it so strongly is that I, on my travels, and I travel quite a lot when there's no pandemic, um, I meet excellent people right down at the grassroots level who don't get their foot through the door 
in you know in public life because someone's some serpentious son has got that or some you know MLA's son has got his seat that's wrong because really some of the best people in India have been kept out of politics because of this so when you make that statement that that's a very important and a powerful statement that people do not either get options or they do not have the ability or they do not have the wherewithal to get into the system to and you also have alluded to something very important that indian politics needs competition so if this is how the whole structure operates how do we really get competition into the system because otherwise that the entry barriers into the system are just far too huge uh well the congress party is a family firm as you know so if you you know you have to really uh, be in the darbar this is actually the in in indira gandhi's time uh, it wasn't a darbar in quite the way that it became under rajiv and sonia where to get a ticket for the election you didn't need to you know to to nurse a constituency or to to nurse an idea or to aspire to doing something for india all you needed to do was to go to the darbar in delhi and sit at the feet of you know whoever the member of the, it's still going on you know i mean i, I think that about 80% of the 40 is it 42 mps or 50 now in in, in 80% of them are the heirs of some political leader you know i mean they were given their seat by mummy or daddy or whatever that's not how democracy should work that is the opposite that's feudalism you know so i call it democratic feudalism or feudalism through the elect uh, through the ballot box and look at india we've been left behind by countries that were you know that were behind us china and uh, china was behind us for many of the years that i was describing um in mao's time china was behind us economically politically and in every sense you know except maybe militarily um so all of all the southeast asian countries what they call the southeast asian tigers they were behind us now today we're in a situation where it looks as though bangladesh is going to get ahead of us so you know it, it has to be we we need to examine why and one reason is this this you know inherited hereditary democracy the other reason is that you've actually blocked good people from coming into public life by this you know by this exclusion right and it's very sad to see that the bjp i thought that under modi you know all of this would change that the political culture would change it hasn't i i remember asking arun jaitley i said why don't you give up latians delhi give up those houses why nobody nowhere in the world do elected officials get that kind of you know they live in palaces and their constituents live in juggies what sense does that make and he said to me oh that'll be in the second term and you know now we're halfway through the second term and they've just got grander and grander we have the central vista now mm-hmm. so we will come to the central vista part uh, later but you're just staying with this whole idea of parivarwad or what you're saying uh, when you talk about parivarwad uh, what what is the malice that uh, stays with the congress like why is it that they've not been able to get out of it why is it they're not able to move forward because if they don't like this becomes a very 
very importantly a very important party which becomes defunct over a period of time because i think when you talk about opposition that india needs opposition or india needs competition so for it to really survive it makes sense that congress should revive so uh, isn't the congress looking at it isn't the leaders looking at it uh, no i don't think they are i was actually just reading barack obama's new book and in that he describes uh, having dinner with sonia and uh, rahul gandhi in manmohan yes. singh's house and he he talks about how she's always pointing to him always drawing the conversation back to him and then he's quite sort of you know uh, brutal in saying that he seems to him like a a student who'd learned the lessons but didn't have the aptitude and i think that's actually a very fair uh, description of him i don't think he's a bad man but he's not cut out for the job the people of india have rejected him over and over again and in two general elections and in god knows how many assembly elections that he has been the leader of the congress party they've lost so you know and then after that they say we're now going to do atma manthan and you know and all this sort of business and it doesn't happen the other thing the other problem with congress is that it really has become a political party that represented the interests of a very small elite now whatever we might say about modi's style of of um, of ruling he has brought people into high offices that couldn't get their foot through the door before he's brought people whose names we don't even know whose daddy we don't know and i think that that's one of the good things that he's done but you know we need the congress party to survive and i really hope that there's some sort of you know movement that will start from within the party that will help it rise out of the ashes in which it's lying because it is lying at the moment in the ashes it's in ruins absolutely and i i agree with you and it is important for them to revive but you have some great leaders within the congress Uh, if you don't mind i'll just like to name somebody like sashi tharoor uh, who is one of the foremost i think one of the thinking politicians that we actually have but he still is within the party and we've also seen at certain point that there are some very important people who have left the party in the recent past uh, so who gets the churn going is going to be an important question and for the sake of the country well, you know i mean i i can't see sashi as prime minister though he would be i think quite a good prime minister if he ever got the chance because you know he he comes he can he can't win kerala it's you've got to actually be able to win a state to put your card forward for prime ministerial office you know it's narsimha rao was the chief minister of andhra pradesh you know Uh, so it, that kind of backing shashi doesn't have but what disappoints me about shashi is that he isn't being more vocal about what the congress party stands for which is a more in- inclusive idea of um of india in which muslims are not uh, targeted in which and, and 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 an idea of india in which politicians do not tell us what to eat and what to drink and you know who to marry and all of that sort of thing the congress party does stand for that idea and unfortunately it's not just shashi who's not talking about it nobody is in the congress party uh, at one point they got so 
confused about who they were, that you had Rahul Gandhi going to temples and doing pujas. And, you know, I mean, if you're going to play the game that the BJP has created, the BJP will always win. So that, that's an interesting point. And just going further, you know, like what, what you're saying, and you do talk about it in many of your columns and your books, that we have to start looking at our leaders from a very different prism. How do we really, what is the prism that we should look at? Because till the time, we do not stop looking at our leaders as God-sent uh, people. We will continue to be like this. So how do we change that? Because when you say a sarpanch son becomes a sarpanch or whatever, that feudalistic mindset happens to be. How do we change that? Uh, we change that by educating uh, people in better schools. We change that by giving them the chance to see what other countries look like. Um, I'm actually very worried. I, I've been living in a village for most of these 18 months and the school has been closed. And uh, most of the kids, uh, you know, don't have, or many of the children don't have smartphones or computers, et cetera. So they're out of school. In the slums of, of uh, Bombay, uh, the kids don't have access to, to anything. Now, you know, what we've done is because they have their phones, they can actually go from illiteracy to, uh, to videos, to video games and to pornography and all that kind of thing without an education. You know, it's very, very important. You see, you're called the thinker's dialogue. The word thinker is very important in all this. If you don't think about political ideas, you don't have them. If you don't read books about democracies and the difference between democracy and, um, and totalitarianism, how will, you, how will you be able to, to digest all this? So when when our people are able to see that a sarpanch putting his wife in his place or his son um, is, a wrong, is the wrong thing to do, um, they will start choosing better. But how can they choose better when, you know, this is the norm? So, Tavlingi, uh, like, you, you know, like, it's an important point in terms of, like, educating. But what we are seeing in the world today is similar to what's happening in many, many countries. Like when you talk about US, you talk about Mexico, you talk about France, uh, you talk about Turkey, like there are very similar sets of things that are actually happening. Uh, why is that happening? Like is it that, because all those societies are not less educated. So there must be something more beyond education that is uh, driving. Each of those has their own story. <clears throat> in, in the case of the US, uh, you've got, um, you know, Mr. Trump, selling a lie to people who are actually they may be literate but not very well educated i mean if you know some of his followers if you saw what happened on january 6th you would see those are not uh, those are literate uh, barbarians you know i mean they were they were vi violent mobs who that gathered there and who believed the lie that he had told them that the election was stolen Right. Had they been politically more educated, they would know that this was nonsense. So that, that's one story. In the case of Turkey, let's you know, I don't know Mexico's uh, situation very well, though he won again. You know, but you're right. There's a kind of leader in the same category as Narendra Modi, uh, Bolsonaro, you know, the, the Orban in Hungary and certainly Erdogan. 
But the reason why Erdogan has survived this long is again, he did something that was quite important, which is that he, he you know, it, Turkey boomed economically under him before he started introducing the Islamic stuff. Secondly, you know, there's Asian Turkey and there's European Turkey, as you know. And he gave those Asian Turks some pride in themselves, you know, as actually in an odd kind of way, Modi has done for a, a certain kind of Hindu who has grown up with, a, with an inferiority complex, you know, who's been bullied by, um, by, by, by everyone into thinking that he was worthless. And, you know, I mean, I'm constantly under attack from that kind of a Hindu at the moment, but I understand where they're coming from. So, so each country is different. It's a different story everywhere. And so, you, you know, like when you're telling a lie, uh, is what you're suggesting or what you're saying, that there is a continuous bombardment of a lie that is happening. Uh, but is it also not true that, probably very akin to what you're saying, that we are trying to sell a mythical past uh, to a lot of people? Uh, mm -hmm. And I think most of the countries are falling for it. Like uh, when you talk about the whole idea of making America great again, that that's some kind of a mythical past. And that's similar to what is happening across the world. Uh, no, no. There, as you can see with the voting bills that they're passing at the moment, there, there it's a different thing. There, there's race involved. The, the Trump, um, uh, Trump has come at the end of a long line of uh, of politicians who believed, I think it's called the Southern Project, or there's some word like that, where, you know, or the Southern voter, Nixon was in that line, you know, Barry Goldwater. It's a long Reagan, you know, where uh, they don't want uh, the multi-racial America that has come to uh, exist in, in the coastal cities, and, you know, certainly in a city like New York or San Francisco, uh, that idea that the, of, of America being a white country is what they are hanging on to. In our case, it's true we're, we're talking about a mythical past, and it wasn't so much of a myth. It was there were achievements in ancient India that are not taught to Indian children. You know, there, there were great mathematicians we never read about. There were great dynasties, the Cholas and all those, the ones who actually um, civilized Southeast Asia, that's a bad word to use, but you know, the influence of, of India into Southeast Asia came from those, those, those dynasties, which we read nothing about. We, all we've read about, the, 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 the only dynasty we know before the Gandhis are the Mughals. So there was, there was an imbalance that I was hoping would get corrected already. But, you know, Mr. Modi has been around for seven years. We're still using the same textbooks, the same tacky schools, nothing has improved. But it's not totally a mythical past. It was a, a past that was erased in, in the name of socialism and in the name of secularism. It was erased, you know? Um, Ajit, by the way, who was who just helped me get onto your show, was he took Amish Tripathi to uh, an engineering college, um, where you know which he he runs, and Amish said, you know, you're engineering students, so you know, have you all studied mathematics? And they said yes. And then he said, how many of you know the name Bhaskaracharya? One hand went up. Right. 
similarly, when Modi was talking about plastic surgery in ancient India, uh, he was right. But he, he made it into a mythical analogy. He could have mentioned Sushrut, who, whose statue is in surgeon, you know, surgical colleges everywhere in Australia. The, the, the College of Medicine, which teaches surgery, has his statue because he did invent plastic surgery. He, the, the method he used for, for the nasal replacement, they're still using the same one. So, you know, I mean, what we need to do is examine these things. And, you know, I mean, I keep talking about it from time to time. We need a truth commission of the kind that this that you had in South Africa. We get the Muslims and the Hindus and get get all the big teachers together. Put the Dalai Lama in charge and let's examine what has been lost and how it can be brought back. But don't believe that it was just a myth. It existed. It's a very important point. But you, you also said something early on in your uh, uh, point that, you know, like there is this whole huge phobia that seems to be uh, really coming up on what you're really alluding to in terms of Hindus and Muslims. Uh, there, there seems to be a phobia within the minds of the people. Is it a real phobia? Is it political or whatever? And then, of course, there is also this narrative or there is this that the majority somehow feels that they are victims. And uh, th there is this whole huge alignment uh, with thinking wherein you say that, oh, that victimhood that we have actually suffered needs to actually be done away with. Uh, and of course, it has its embedded, it is embedded in the political past of the country. But don't you think that we need to resolve that as we move yes. forward? Yes, we do. And political parties, if they would, if, you know, they weren't constantly just fighting elections, would, would think about these things, would find out how, you know, for instance, if you're European, you know where you came from. You know that there was the Dark Ages and then there was the Enlightenment and all that kind of thing and the Renaissance. What we need in India is not, um, you know, digging up uh, anger and rage and vengeance from the past but an understanding of why certain important things in India were erased. Why were they erased? Um, you know, I, I was actually, you know, a supporter of Modi because I thought that these are the things they would think about. But unfortunately, none of this has changed, which is very disappointing. When you say things have not changed, what, what do you think has been the reason for this? Like why, why this whole thing is stalled? I, I know like, uh, Prime Minister Modi was one of the most popular leaders when he got elected uh, for the first term. Even the second term, he was far more popular. Uh, and a lot of us uh, must have voted for him, even on this uh, group. And I think with great sets of expectations. Uh, I think I, I can confess that I've personally voted for Prime Minister a number of times. And I think uh, because there was a huge promise of how India can be a developed country. Uh, but why do you think uh, that this seems to have really fallen side or what is really happening? Uh, well, this is a point that I bring up quite often in the book. Uh, we keep hoping that, you know, he, I kept hoping that he would um, reduce, because, you know, he used to talk about there'll be less government and more governance. So I thought that there would be, uh, government would get on with the business of governing India instead of running big public sector you know, enterprises like Air India. Um, 
I think that he was on the right track in the beginning, in the first couple of months. And then he somehow either lost his confidence or something happened. Two or three things happened, I think. One, he was taunted in parliament by Rahul Gandhi about Sut Budki Sarkar. And so he reversed the direction that he was going in and came back to welfare schemes. And, you know, he ran them better, which is one he, why he won again. But he hasn't changed the direction of the economy. Last year and in the past, yeah, last year when after the pandemic, when things got really bad, they've announced a whole slew of reforms. But, you know, they are reforms that are not based on, on any real idea of reform for either social reform or political or economic. It's just been, you know, riding roughshod, uh, ramming bills through parliament, um, it, the farm laws, for instance, but leave that aside. Basically, since he became prime minister for the second time, all of that has been put aside. And all we're to, you know, he started off with the, the citizen amendment bill, which was not needed. Which Hindu, Sikh, Christian, Isai, whatever, refugee was ever denied access to coming to India? I mean, all that the, that the amendment did was on a religious basis, you know, create a, an amendment that wasn't even really needed. It was, it just whipped up uh, hysteria among Muslims. Then you have Articles 370, which actually, by the way, the abrogation is something that I, I recommend. I, I mean, I'm, I, but again, you know, rammed through as if it was a Hindu Muslim situation. That's not gonna get us anywhere. And for instance, now with the pandemic, in the BJP states, why are there primary, primary health centers that do not work? Why are there hospitals that don't have doctors? Why is these, this is the moment when we really should be doing those things? Why are they not happening? Those are the questions we should be asking. So, you know, you make a very important point again. And I would just like to ask you two questions uh, out here. Like one is very clearly you said uh, that it's within the BJP states that the primary health centers are not there. But I think that's uh, uh, issue that we face across the board, across the country. Uh, so it's not the BJP no, no, versus no, no, no. In southern and western India, believe me, things are better. I mean, I know people who went to, um, uh, you know, the COVID centers, who got COVID and went to COVID centers run by the municipality of Bombay. And they pray, they praise what happened. I mean, they said they were, they were very well run. This is not true in UP or in Bihar or Madhya Pradesh or, you know, and these are states that have been run by the BJP for more than one term. Why did they not change their, now, for instance, all that they're trying to do is manage, uh, manage headlines. So if you, if you bring out the truth of what happened in, in those villages along the Ganga, then you, you're charged with treason. You know, I mean, Barkha, who I really think has done, she, she should be given, a, a, you know, an award for what she's done. She started this, she brought out the story of the migration, uh, of the migrants, and she brought out the story of the unburied dead along the banks of the Ganga. And for that, she is reviled by people close to Narendra Modi. That isn't the way forward. That is not, you know, you've got to listen if you're, in a, if you're the leader of a democracy. But when you say like, there are people uh, who will revile 
Barkhata or whatever. But don't you think it'll be uh, brutal on our side if we just say that it is all the making of the prime minister or whatever? Because uh, he, it isn't. It isn't. The people who are running the vaccination program, why have they not been sacked? They have blood on their hands. The the man who is in charge, who was in charge of surgical, no, not surgical, medical supplies, couldn't provide enough oxygen, and he is on television every day telling us, you know, dogas ki duri, mask pano. These the same officials. I don't want to name them, but you know who I'm talking about. They haven't been sacked, and actually, the private, the the British health secretary resigned for a tiny misdemeanor for breaking a, a rule he made, and he did it for love. He, these guys have not even been pulled up publicly, leave alone uh, sacked. They should be sacked. If, if, if Mr. Modi did that, it's not his job. It probably, it, the, what we can blame him for is maybe not getting them to order vaccinations when we were lighting DRs and you know, bajaring thalis and all that sort of thing. At that, that is when the other countries were ordering and paying for vaccinations to countries like Pfizer and Moderna. I think that Modi missed that bus uh, because he didn't believe that we had such a serious problem. But, you know, in fairness to him, as soon as he found out that it wasn't just TTT, as he says, but vaccinations, that is the only way out of this. You know, they've ramped up production and they were allowing in Moderna and Sputnik and everything like that. But if he would make the people responsible for the mistakes accountable, then it wouldn't go to him. Yeah, makes sense. And so, of course, like, but why do you think? Uh, you know, I, I think there is some uh, truth in the fact or there is. I think Prime Minister Modi uh, respects his team or he takes the team along in some way or the other. He, he feels that continuity is important. So maybe that is driving his decision. Or do you think it is more from a political perspective uh, that uh, people in charge have not been sacked or not been reprimanded in public? I don't know. I can't uh, speak for him. But you have a team, right? You work with a team? Yeah. If every um, important uh, conversation that you had was somehow, you know, screwed up by by whoever in your team. Would you not either ask for an explanation or sack them? I mean, that's just basic common sense. I am not at all. I, I cannot understand why he's doing this. I can, I assume that it's because of the isolation in which he has put himself. Do you know that Indira Gandhi said one thing very important at the end of the emergency? Some British journalist asked her what she considered the biggest mistake she'd made during the emergency, and she said press censorship. Now, Mr. Modi has never held a press conference. He sees only those journalists who are ready to come on their knees and, you know, and do farshi salam to him. How is he going to get feedback? So, you know, I mean, I know from the hostility I get from the BJP trolls, you know, there's a full army, as you know, uh, that they don't want to hear the other side. So if you're not going to hear the other side, how do you know what's happening? Mm -hmm. So maybe he has no idea. So, okay, now that, that's a point uh, well taken, but so probably he's not been given the right information or the right set of data is not being presented to him. 
but you also said something very important, uh, and that was that uh, the government did just moved into a social direction or a socialist perspective or started focusing on those things. Uh, don't you think, uh, from a country point of view, like, of course, economic development is important, and then, of course, social development is important. And I think this government, for sure, has done a lot more for social development in the last seven years than many other governments in the past. In fact, if you really talk about something like Swachh Bharat, uh, success uh, could be a limited success uh, if we really look at the numbers, but I no, think it's, it's a very been an, It's been an extraordinary success. Yes, So, but it's a great thing that they have done. So the, the, for the first time, we were really talking about cleanliness in the country. And similarly, there are other things that this government has actually done, something like Jandhan, Adhar, Mobile, the Trinity. And so wasn't it a great step forward from a social point of view? Uh, of, uh, from an... Absolutely. And I praise it in, 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 in the book. Um, you know, not everything uh, that Modi has done is wrong. Not everything that he's done is right, but definitely not everything he's done is wrong. And certainly he paid attention to those fundamentals that um, where Congress has failed since the time of Nehru, you know, because the, the bureaucrat doesn't send his children to the government school he builds, or he, he doesn't take treatment in the government hospital that he builds. He couldn't care less that these facilities, he, he won't even think that, that that's of any consequence. And by the way, when we talk about reform, the even the economists who are on the socialist side say that the two most imp important reforms now needed in the next generation of reforms is in healthcare and education. So why is why have they not done that? You know, but he's he's certainly done much better in the in the social welfare schemes, et cetera, than the Congress party did. The Congress party it was just for the name only. And I think it's because he comes from a different class background. Um, he's not, and he's he comes from a lower caste as well. He's not a big Brahmin from you know somewhere or the other. So he actually understood the pain that ordinary Indians go through every day much better than, than the Congress party did. So th that's fascinating. And then, you know, like you also make a very important point in your uh, book. And I think you, you were, you've suggested something of that sort, at least at the minister's level. Uh, and you make a very important point and that is Indian bureaucrats could ruin the best laid plans as one word they hated was change. So do you think, the government also faces a bureaucratic challenge as we go along. Yes. Um, if I had been Modi, I would have had a team of chief ministers because you've got to actually work with the chief ministers if you want to bring about the changes in education and healthcare that, that we're talking about. He worked with the chief secretaries. So, you know, I mean, chief ministers I know would say to me that, you know, they would be talking to their chief secretary and he would suddenly say, so sorry, I have to go, the prime minister's calling. Now, he had uh, a faith in, uh, in bureaucrats that comes from Gujarat, his experience in Gujarat. And, you know, he was the mayor of Gujarat, really. He did a lot of things in Gujarat that were fundamental, basic things. And he did them through the bureaucracy. But what he didn't realize is, 
that you can't become the mayor of India. It's, it's a continent almost. And that the Indian bureaucrat at the top is, he doesn't want any change because then his privileges are reduced. Go to any district and go and see the collector's house. Just take a look at any, there is in every um, small town, for instance, you will see that there's one road that is clean and on that road will be the collector with a post that should not exist. It's a colonial post. It, it never existed in, in England. They made it here and we still haven't got rid of it. And so, you know, then the center works through the collector or works through the governor. It shouldn't happen that way. You know, if the panchayats were in charge of the schools and the hospitals and they weren't functioning and their children were dying, they would do something about it. But, you know, we don't, we, we haven't changed any of that. What stops us from changing that? Because, you know, like, I absolutely agree with you on that point, that there is a, a legacy of the Raj. The collectorship is effectively the legacy of the Raj and the way the whole structure is. Uh, it is more about control than enabling. And what is it that has stalled this process of change? The bureaucrat, my friend, the bureaucrat, because you change that and then he doesn't get to live in a palace, you know, in, in wherever he is. And he sits there like a little Raja. I mean, you, you think the guys in Latin's Delhi are arrogant and, you know, privileged. You should see how the ordinary collector lives. How do we change that? Do you think this will ever become a policy? Abolish the, abolish the permanent bureaucracy. Abolish mm -hmm. it. Start hiring officials on the basis of their skills. We don't need these, you know, uh, a permanent bureaucracy. We should do what countries like New Zealand have done. And even in, in America, for instance, which is a different system, a president can choose, yes. you know, who he wants to. So if somebody is very skilled, at a particular, that's why they've got so much ahead of us, right? There are two ways to actually progress as a country. One is the, the Chinese way, which is uh, with, with capitalism and totalitarianism, you know, it's, it's their model. And so you have then six people or how many people there are in, in the Politburo running China. They don't have to ask anyone's permission. They don't have to go and get elected, nothing, right? That's one way. The other way is our way. That was our, that is our strength, you know, which is why I keep saying the only thing we have, you know, that the Chinese don't have is democracy. Ajit, for instance, was in some conference, you, you know, Ajit is in, in the construction business. And a, a Chinese businessman said to him, it was quite an important conference in Hong Kong. He said, look at China's airports, look at our, look at our, look at the, how clean the toilets are. Look at our, our railways, etc. So Ajit said, we can get Bechtel or some other American company to build those things. How is China going to build a parliament? How long is that going to take? Right? So mm -hmm. we have this great strength over China, which we never talk about and we never exploit. But, you know, we have to have one or the other. And I'm sorry, but the prime minister's reliance on the bureaucracy has been a very bad idea. So if I ask you, like, what are a few things that this government or should do immediately uh, uh, to really improve what we are really seeing? 
what are those things? Like, of course, you said health, education, bureaucracy. Now, what else do you think we should really be looking at? At the moment with the pandemic, the first thing they have to do is to get the chief ministers to travel through every village in the country. L literally get the chief minister to make a team and travel through every village and see where the primary health centers are actually working or not. Then they have to make sure that the standards of hygiene we need for vaccinations not to go bad, uh, you know, are Swach Bharat. This should all be part of the Swach Bharat campaign or whatever it is. That at the moment to me is fundamental. Then, you know, instead of increasing the power of the politician and the bureaucrat, throw them out of these big government houses. Nobody does this. In England, I think it's the the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Prime Minister who has a government house. Everyone else rents a flat in London. Uh, I have an American uh, friend who's a diplomat and you know she had to actually give up her, uh, you know, her career. she was taken into the State Department under Clinton and she had to give up that job and go back to diplomacy because she didn't make enough money to, you know. Here it's, pol politics has become the easiest way to make money in India. And, you know, the bureaucracy comes second. I don't know a bureaucrat, as a, high, a senior bureaucrat, whose children aren't studying abroad. How? But don't you think that will be a blanket acquisition of sorts? Because, I'm, of course, I, their children I'm could be... To, I'm given to a little bit of, you know, uh, putting some masala into what I say. And, <laughs> but, but, but the point is, how many, how do they afford it? All right, then you, they live in, I actually grew, grew up in Latians, Delhi, because my nana was one of the people who built uh, New Delhi with, uh, with Latians. And so I know the price of land there because I have a small flat in Latians, Delhi. Uh, an acre of land in Latians, Delhi is 150 crore rupees. The last I heard, okay. If I rent out my flat, I don't want to go into how much it costs. But these ministers are living on five acres of land. So, you know, I mean, if they want to do this central vista, they want to do this redevelopment, please rent out, you know, monetize Latin's Delhi. Sell those cottages or rent them out or do something. Why should ministers live in them? Why should MPs need a flat? You know, which is... I, a small flat in, in that area, the rent you pay, I don't want to go into the details of. Yeah. Well, that, that's an interesting point again. And just moving forward, you know, like you, you've also alluded to this in your writing, and you do mention it in your book as well. And that's the challenge of fake news. And, uh, you know, like there are many issues that we're facing. I'm not going directly into what has been written in the book, but I think there is a larger issue that we face as society of fake news. And how do we really resolve that issue? Because I think uh, there is a lot of conversation on what you would call as WhatsApp University and so on and so forth, but we really need to find a way to really giving the right set of information and the appropriate information. And how do we resolve that? That is an international problem and it's very complicated. QAnon believes that the world is being run by a group of Satan workers who are all pedophiles, right? Uh, 
Um, yes. And fake news at one point had a different meaning. The Russians actually, the Soviet Union, when it was the Soviet Union, was very good at planting it. People have studied this. So they would put something into say the Patriot newspaper in Delhi, and that would get picked up by the Washington Post or, or the New York Times. And then people would start exploring and it would be a completely fake bit of news. But that was easier to handle. Now what you've got is you know, technology that you that is bigger than us and very difficult to control. So, you know, which is why I think it's silly of them to do what they're doing with Twitter. You know, I mean, get grow up, you know, <laughs> just stop thinking that you can control it. Uh, but I don't see fake news as something that you can control. And I don't think it's that important. And but when you talk about Twitter, you know, like uh, there's also the other side of the problem of Twitter. and that is like when you actually have a sitting president and you curtail his rights to be on the platform. Uh, don't you think that itself is also very, very scary uh, from a capitalistic power point of view? No, he was inciting a riot. Mm -hmm. He was, I mean, sedition, the word sedition actually means saying something that leads to violence. He made a speech on January 6th that persuaded the mob to go there and try and stop the, um, you know, the, the, the election of Biden. Now, you know, it was because of that they actually gave a reason. Secondly, he has used it as a platform to spread lies that unfortunately too many of his countrymen believed. So, you know, I mean, I, I think that was perfectly fair. I, I don't see that as, you know, uh, why not stop him? Huh? Okay. So would you think that'll lead to a dangerous precedent wherein a corporate uh, firm can actually stop a sitting president? Because that's that it also stalls the democratic process. I'll agree with you fundamentally that it was sedition, uh, that information had to be stalled. But there is a democratically elected leader. Then what happens? That democratically elected leader was trying to steal an election. That democratically elected leader had refused to accept the results of an election that elected somebody else in place of him. So it's it's an unusual situation. But I don't think that the rise of, of social media uh, threatens uh, democracy. It actually, I mean, I, I'm the brunt of it, so I know it actually gives a lot of democ democracy to say to very ordinary people to insult uh, people like me on a daily basis. I mean, that's pretty democratic. Mm -hmm. So what is the way forward like uh, with this? Like, Because what we are really seeing within the country right now, there seems to be a stalemate that we seem to have reached. How do we resolve that? Like, what is the step forward? Well, you know, I mean, I'm not in the business of uh, of political theory, but I'm just just as a political columnist, I would like to say that I, I'd like to see two things happen. One, I really would like to see uh, the prime minister shift away from just winning elections to actual governance. You know, to and I would like to him to move away from this kind of you know, low life type Hindutva person to, to whom he's lent his support. Uh, we don't need the Bajrang Dal for a renaissance in, in the Hindu faith. We, what we need are the, the mighty Brahmins to come forward and tell us the way forward. 
the Bajrang Dal and the Vishwa Hindu Parishad and a temple in Ayodhya is not going to make a difference. The other thing I would like to see is the Congress party find out what, what, what it's, where it's gone wrong in what it stands for and how, how they can revive that because until they revive that, we don't have an opposition party on the national level. So, like this is interesting. And then you also allude to many other social things that have actually happened uh, in India within your uh, book. Uh, you talk about lynchings, you talk about uh, Article 370 and things like, what is, there is also an acquisition uh, that it's probably the Congress or it's probably the other parties which are creating uh, uh, whatever such kind of narratives that people are lynching or whatever. It's not probably the beat. They can't just win an election. <laughs> they can't win municipal elections. And you think they mm -hmm. can organize all this? If they could mm -hmm. organize all this, they would have won the last election. And if we continue to do that, you know, like, as you said in the beginning, you know, like the primary thing for India is about economic development and attracting investments. Uh, do you think this kind of thing that we are really seeing can actually have a detrimental impact? Uh, I'm certainly, if we are more democratic, if we are more free, it does attract better investments. Uh, but do you think we're already seeing some shine going away from India in some ways? Um, I've heard, you know, I live in Bombay. So, you know, I mean, I've, I have friends who are in, in business and financial circles. And, you know, the stock market is, is booming, as you know, but apparently it's what they call hot money. It's not going into greenfield projects. It comes and it moves off and it goes away and it comes back, but it's not helping anyone except those who invest in the stock market. So foreign, you know, what the Chinese did was very clever. Uh, in the nineties, when I first went to China, they'd managed to get the Americans and, you know, overseas Chinese to invest in their infrastructure. So all the roads and the railways, et cetera, they got money from, they got real investment from abroad. Now we have our overseas Indians are not as rich as those guys, as the overseas Chinese, but you know, you've got to create an atmosphere in which the country seems in a happy mood. Do you know, at the moment, that's not what I see. I've come back to the city after three months in, in a village. And I've been talking to people here and there, and there's a real despair at the moment. You know, there's, whether you're talking to rich people or poor, um, there is this feeling that, you know, we're rudderless, that no one's in charge. And, you know, the pandemic is in charge. That's not good. Do you know, I mean, I, compare it to what Biden did. He said, in my first hundred days, I'm going to put this many vaccines into this many, I think he's at 100 million Americans or something like that. What we need is the prime minister to lead us forward in that sort of thing. You know, not monkey bath and not, not little housekeeping details like, you know, that we can work out, you know, that can be done through ads. He seems at the moment to have lost his, uh, his idea of leading India forward, which is what made people like you and me support him in the first place. So if you just see that what has really happened, like the, the pandemic has been fairly brutal for India. It's, it's had, had 
huge detrimental impact. In fact, I think a lot of us, or probably most of us in India, have had uh, somebody lose in the family or whatever. So, uh, and I did a piece on this called "Shrillness of Death." Uh, but the question here is that during the pandemic, I think there are limited things that the prime minister could possibly do or what. Uh, but going forward, uh, as you say, like there are many things that need to be done, and there has to be a direction. So, if I really ask you a thought-provoking question here, and that would be, how does he rest the place of being a statesman as he moves forward? He's got to improve the product. You know, they, they have been so busy raging against the Western plot with, with Greta Thunberg, and the, it, the narrative is wrong. You know, if you if you really believe that the New York Times or the Economist are have got it are part of a huge international conspiracy to defame the Prime Minister of India, then you've got to be a little bit nuts, right? Because they aren't. They, they are reporting the story as they see it, as they do in their own country. When there were bodies piling up in, in air-conditioned vans in Central Park, they reported it in New York, right? But we are so, uh, or at least the people around the prime minister are so paranoid about his image being uh, facing damage that they haven't seen that if he actually starts to behave like a statesman, if he starts showing leadership and, you know, um, instead of hubris, showing real leadership, he will get a, a better, he will be, uh, you know, in the eyes of the world, a better statesman. So there is a certain uh, thing, and I think both of us, when we were talking, and I think I also see it within you and with this conversation that uh, we still have some hope, or we still believe that Prime Minister Modi can actually do many more things, and they're quite possible within his regime if he does some kind of course correction. Yes, and he's here till 2024. You know, this is only only his first two years. So what he really must do for the sake of India is to at least give the Indian people and the world the impression that India is more important than his image. If, mm -hmm. if, if, if you start using Narega, just as an example, if you use Narega to build the health centers I'm talking about, if you use Narega to build the facilities that we need for healthcare, you've got those guys, you're paying them anyway. Change the course of that, get them, you, then you create jobs, you know, you, you're doing rural infrastructure and jobs as well, because unemployment is actually one of our biggest problems at the moment. And if, the, if India starts to look better, the prime minister looks better. It's not the other way around. Absolutely. And but then last two questions as we coming towards the end of the time. But then you, you did say that it is about like how businesses need to be run and what they need to do or what is really happening to them. What do you think should be the role as a political commentator when you look at things? There is an important role of businesses, but then businesses seem to be really happy right now. Or that oh, is what no, 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 not true. Not true. Mm -hmm. Um, what we what we're seeing is, and I think somebody wrote about it today. Um, you know, there are two ways, two kinds of capitalism. Um, one is the kind where you, you know, I really believe in the market. 
I believe that, every, that you should cut regulations down to the barest minimum, that the role of officials should only be to inspect and to correct uh, you know, misdemeanors. Uh, and that is how you will get a free market. That's what Narsimha Rao did. He just ended the license Raj, and suddenly you got a boom, right? Um, what, the other way is the Putin Xi Jinping way, which is the leader controls a group of oligarchs who become very rich because they, they share in the loot. And um, you know that's not the way to do it. That mustn't happen. And at the moment, there are a handful of, of industrialists who have benefited instead of millions. There should be millions. Nirmala Sitaraman herself said she would like to see millions of billionaires. We can do it. So I think, as you say, like the, the, the intent has been there. The only question is that how do we really create that action and implementation? The intent the stopped being there. That's where he went wrong. He changed direction. He didn't concentrate on what he had said about Parivartan and Vikas. He went into the welfare, the social welfare program then. That was the emphasis of the last term. In this term, you know, it's been really um, Hindutva and the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I hope we get out of the pandemic sometime soon and we are able to move into- Well, if, if we had bought the vaccinations, that was the biggest mistake that he made, right? If we had bought vaccinations when America bought them, when Europe bought them, we would have 70% of our people vaccinated already. Now we have to wait till December. And then next year we need boosters because the pandemic isn't going away. Absolutely. And But before we close, if I ask you, like, what more do you think people should read to understand India? Or what are your three favorite books that you must have read in the last one year? Uh, I'm very bad at that sort of thing because, you know, I put, I, I read two or three books at the same time. I recommend Obama's book, the one I'm reading at the moment. It's very good. I recommend a, a book called Doom by Neil Ferguson, which I'm also reading. I, I, I read too many books at the same time. And as for a third one um, by Martin Amis, which isn't really about the pandemic, it's a novel, an autobiographical novel, those three. That's interesting. And of course, I would recommend that everybody... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, everyone must. Yeah, you must read this book. It's sure, and, then, uh -huh. and last the last thing that you would like to say that I might not have covered in this conversation. I think you've you really covered have to move. I'm going to die of thirst in two minutes if I speak another word. I think you've covered <laughs> everything that you could possibly cover. Thank you, uh, Tavlinji. It has just been such an honor to have you with us. It was just a pleasure talking to you. And I it was a pleasure to talking to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.